Welcome, everyone. We are now getting ready for the Statues and Stories Hour with Adam Levinson. How are you, Adam? I am phenomenal. How's everybody? We are, considering that we weren't drafted and were too cowardly to go to war, I'm really happy that there are those who got more guts than I do, and we need to celebrate them today on Veterans Day. Absolutely. I completely agree, and that's one of the purposes of tonight's hourly discussion. Ed, were you about to say something? Oh no! I uh, I enrolled for college in 19, summer in the September of 1974, and we were the first class since around 1940 that did not have to register for the draft. How about that? So uh, perfect timing. Yeah. Oh, no, no, yeah, that's right. Perfect timing. And you dropped out of ROTC or no? Nope. No, didn't. No, you? I, if I would have gone, I would have gone into the CIA or something like that. Yeah, you, you would have been a Navy JAG like no, our governor. Maybe, maybe no, but no. All right. So, what do we? How do we start this today? What so would I you... think it makes sense, as you're both doing, to mention that uh, today is Veterans Day. So, the purpose of this hour will be to talk about uh, you know, the establishment of the laws, because statute of stories talks about the old laws, Revolutionary War period, early American history. So, uh, the, the background behind uh, where we are today with our uh, phenomenal military, which is uh, the world class, uh, second to none. Uh, and Manny, I was going to point out to you that the Dolphins have now been uh, two consecutive uh, winning streaks, so that's always a good thing. But uh, so, what in other words, they established their own War Department. Uh, hopefully, they can they can continue uh, in the traditions of uh, the American military, but not to compare football with, with, with the military. So, here on a more serious note, uh, it is Veterans Day, and uh, when I was growing up, I didn't know the difference between Veterans Day and Memorial Day. So, just to repeat for all of our listeners, Veterans Day celebrates. All veterans who served, and those who passed, those that are still that are still in the military, and, and those that are retired from the military. So that's Veterans Day. Whereas Memorial Day, as the name connotes, is for those who passed away in military service. So uh, what, what is the history of Veterans Day before we get into the early American laws? And the quick answer is that Veterans Day was originally called Armistice Day, and that's because the treaty after World War One was called the Armistice Treaty or the Armistice, Armistice or the Treaty. Uh, so it was called Remembrance Day and Armistice Day, and that celebrated. It's probably celebrated in Europe because World War One was a war that was the first World War in many respects. And the day and the hour that was chosen was the eleventh hour of the eleventh day of 1918, and that's where Veterans Day comes from, as Armistice Day. And that was the end of major hostilities for World War One when the Germans surrendered and they agreed to the armistice. So the end of major hostilities, and then they later changed the name from Armistice to, to, to celebrate veterans, not just the end of the war. Uh, and then 1954 is when it was renamed Veterans Day. So that's a little bit of the history of Veterans Day. So today, the idea is to walk through some of these laws that uh, support our military. And I'll point out to everybody that when we do this every week, uh, of course, you listen to us on the radio, you can go to the podcast on the WSQF website, refer to your friends, and then there is the website statutesandstories.com. And uh, this week, we actually have a new post, which went live yesterday on statutesandstories.com, which talks about the act establishing the War Department. So that's where we're going to start tonight, the act establishing the War Department. And then there are also multiple posts on the website statutes and stories dealing with some of the early military laws. And uh, we'll talk, if we have time, about the Militia Acts of 1792. We'll talk about the acts establishing the Navy and some of the other departments. And we can talk about other early battles, the Battle of Yorktown, and early colonial and American history relating to war and uh, where we are with our military today. So I wanted to, before we delve into the act establishing the War Department, let's give a little bit of background. <clears throat> I'm going to 
today, which is the military establishment, as they called it, with uh, where we were last week, which was the Bill of Rights. And one of the issues that we talked about with the Bill of Rights is that the Federalists wanted a strong federal government. Sorry, to, sorry to interrupt. Uh, sorry to interrupt. Uh, I think you have to back off your cell phone a little bit because some of it comes in garbled. So, I guess if I'm too close, I will back up a little bit. Yeah, so there's more clarity, and and I guess that phone can be. in again? No, he's on a cell phone. Okay. So yeah, somehow keep it the same distance away from your mouth so that as your volume goes up and down, it doesn't come in garbled. I will try to do that. So here I'm going to ask you a question, picking up from last week. So the Federalists wanted the new federal government with strong federal robust authority, and they were opposed by what group? Anti-Federalists. The Anti-Federalists. So here the point is that one of the things the Anti-Federalists were afraid of, and we know the names of some of the Anti-Federalists, you've got Patrick Henry, you've got uh, William Henry Lee. Right, right now you need to stay where you just were, because uh, you're, now you're fading away for some reason. George Mason. about a federal government that would be too powerful, and one of the things they were concerned about was that there wasn't a Bill of Rights, and they were successful in convincing Madison to prepare a Bill of Rights, but they were also worried about a strong military. Uh, so that was what we were talking about last week, Federalists versus Anti-Federalists, and how that relates to the Bill of Rights. And what I'm going to point out now is that, uh, and Ed may pick up on this, that uh, when we're going to talk now about the first Congress. So the first Congress comes in after the Constitution to ratify it. The first Congress takes office, if you will, in 1789. And they have a lot on their plate. They have to establish the new federal government. They have to start raising taxes. They have to get the House in order because we're replacing the Articles of Confederation. So here, and it's not a fair question to ask, but I will ask you this question. What was the first law, because we've done this on other nights, what was the first law that was adopted by the first Congress? Oaths. The Oath Act, right? And you can go to statutes and stories and read about the Oath Act to establish the oath. So senators and members of Congress would know what oath they have to take, what oath or, or oath or affirmation. The other point is, now yeah, they've established what the Oath Act is, what's the next series of laws they're going to do, and lo and behold, the topic for tonight, the act establishing the War Department was the seventh law adopted, or seventh act of Congress, adopted by the first Congress in 1789. It was adopted on April 7th of 1789, and um, they had to establish, let's call it the cabinet, what were going to be the agencies that would operate under under Washington. So who, if you remember, was the first Secretary of War once they established the War Department? Knox. No. no wasn't Knox. Hamilton? No. No, he was Treasury. Hamilton was Treasury. No, but Knox. that was under Washington. Under Washington, Knox was Secretary of War. So we're going to talk about Henry, Henry Knox tonight, and that's K-N-O-X. And we think that's the same Henry Knox that the Fort Knox is named after. Right, yep. So the act we're talking about tonight is Chapter 7, Laws of the First Congress from 1789, which established the War Department and the first Secretary of War under the new Constitution is Henry Knox. So what other agencies did they have to establish, which would become Washington's cabinet? And remember, there are only three cabinet agencies and then the Attorney General. And, and Manny, you mentioned one of the agencies. What's the, what's the next department that's created? Uh, department of the Navy. No, no, Treasury, Hamilton. Right. So, so that was the first department. No, the first was war, second was Treasury. Oh, you, you guys are making fun of me, man. All right, so these are tough questions. So no, they're not. I'll put, I'll put them in the order that they were adopted. And it's a little tricky because Jefferson was in France. So the first department, cabinet department that's created is the Secretary of State. But uh, they can't have Jefferson come yet because he's in, he's in Paris. So that was the first agency created. The second agency is war, Department of War, that we're going to talk about tonight. And the third agency was the Treasury Department, and Hamilton 
be appointed the first Secretary of Treasury. So that will become the cabinet for, for Washington. And Manny is right that eventually, and when you skip ahead from 1789 to the 1800 time frame, Hamilton becomes the head of the army when there is concern that we may go to war with France. So he becomes a general, the head of the army. And this is about a generation later, he becomes the head of the, the, the War Department to get the, the, the army up and running. That's Washington's condition. All right, so I say, I, uh, I say my reputation here on the concrete concern. Don't worry. Okay, go ahead. So we're talking now about the act establishing the War Department. And again, we just pointed out uh, there were three cabinet agencies. And I'm going to throw out to you that if people want to go to the website to read this act of the first Congress, it creates the Department of War, which was the second agency created after the State Department. <laughs> I'm going to throw out to you um, a brand new Congress. How many pages? And today, whenever Congress passes legislation dealing with the military or pretty much any other subject, it's very voluminous because law today is complex. But now go back to the beginning, and I'm, I'm asking you the question with a smile on my face. How many pages do you think the... We're not hearing you well at all. Okay, how many pages do you... There you go. The act, the act creating the Department of War, how many pages do you think it was? One. Okay, so uh, one and a half pages. So that tells you four sections. So it was pretty easy for them to create the Secretary of War in, in the War Department. So let me ask you uh, some more background about uh, this act creating the Department of War. And let me give you the title. And again, I'm going to try to build on this tension from last week that the Federalists wanted a strong federal government, and the Anti-Federalists did not want a strong federal government. They were worried about the federal government becoming a tyranny and taking away state power, etc. So... It wasn't enough to just create the War Department. They also had to create the Army. So they created the War Department, but they hadn't yet created the Army. So interestingly, the last period, the last day of the first Congress, because it goes into different sessions, so the last day of the first session of the first Congress ended September 29th of 1789, and they delay the act which creates the Army. And let me give some more detail what I mean by creating the Army. So under the Articles of Confederation, we had an army, but it was very small, and it was just a protective frontier. It didn't really do much. It had effectively been disbanded after the Revolutionary War, and you just had a station of troops in in um, what is the the military school, which is uh, for the, the war college. West Point. West Point. So you West had a handful Point. of an artillery regiment basically defending West Point after the Revolutionary War, and you also had. Uh, one regiment which was uh, to defend against the Native Americans on the, the western frontier, if you will. But that was all of the military. So the military had effectively been disbanded. So the, the next thing they have to do is they have to decide what are we going to do about the army. We've created a war department, but the war department needs an army. So they wait until the last day of the first session of the first Congress to adopt, and this is what it's called, an act to recognize and adapt to the Constitution the establishment of the troops ratified under the resolves, and this is a mouthful, of the United States in Congress assembled and for other purposes. So what I just read to you is the title of the act that they create, which it, it doesn't create the army, it takes the army for what it was worth under the articles and brings it under the umbrella of the new constitution. So just to paraphrase, it's an act to recognize and adapt to the constitution. So they, they were worried about the anti-federalists opposing an act creating an army. So instead they take the existing army under the articles and they adapt it, that's the word they use, they adapt it and they recognize it under the new constitution. That's the last day of the, of the first Congress, the last day of the first session of the first Congress. And the beauty of the Statute of Stories website is I put links to these different laws. So if you wanted to read the act creating the War Department, which Henry Knox becomes, as we said, the Secretary of War, or you want to read this act which takes the Army and rolls the Army in 
look at the new federal government. You can read that on the statutes and stories website. So let me prove my point, and Ed can uh, debate this with me and flesh it out. Uh, the anti-federalists were concerned about standing armies. That's why they waited until the last day mm -hmm. of the first session of Congress. So I want to talk about what the Army Clause says and show how there were multiple compromises in the U.S. Constitution. So if anyone has a pocket Constitution handy, or if you go to the statutes and stories website, I quote it. It's Article 1. Section 8, Clause 12 of the Constitution is the Army Clause, and that's the clause of Article 1, obviously, is Congress and gives Congress authority. And it says that Congress shall have the power to, and I'm sort of like skipping around, to raise and support armies. But it goes on to let, say, let, Ed, no, let Ed read it out loud. No, no, no. He's, he's dying ahead. to read it out loud. Go ahead. Come on, Ed. You were, you were given the key to, to read out loud. Read it. Look, because you have to jump around. Oh, I Go it. ahead. Let me pick up. So, skipping around, Congress shall have the power to raise and support armies, skipping around, but no appropriation of money to that use shall be for longer for a longer term than two years. So what the Constitution says is that, yeah, you can have a standing army because the anti-federalists did not want a standing army. So the Constitution recognizes you're going to have a standing army, but... The way to put limitations on the standing army, and conservatives, we can debate about, was this a good idea or not? You can only have a standing army for no more than two years. The longest an appropriation can last is two years, which corresponds with how long congressional terms are and right. congressional sessions are. You know, every Congress is a two-year Congress. So then the next Congress can decide whether to continue that. Right. So, in a way, if they were worried that, you know, you get a commander-in-chief who's running amok and he's creating all kinds of havoc... Funding runs out after two years, right. and Congress has to reaffirm and um, you know re reappoint or not reappoint, but the reallocate money, reappropriate every two years. So the Constitution has a limit in there that the funding for the military runs out every two years unless it's reconstituted. So that was one of the limitations. This is again that dance between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. And I'm going to make the point to you tonight about how, and we'll move on once we make the point. But uh, there was a lot of concern about a standing army, and then maybe I'll ask the question: Why were the colonists hostile, many of them, especially the anti-federalists, to what they referred to as a standing army. They'd had a bad experience with the Brits. Right. So they had bad experience with the British. And think about it for a moment. Who do you think, other than high-ranking officers, who would be in the standing army of the British Empire? You know, are people necessarily volunteering because it's a good line of work to be in the army? No, so they were the scores. They were just recruited everywhere. Forget well, it. You got a, you got a fresh pair uh, pair of boots, right? No, no. Well, yeah, maybe they were probably uh, proud of prison and stuff like that. They were these were desperados, right? And, and you know, if you're in Boston, this is uh, 1770s, and we're protesting the Stamp Act, and we're protesting the Intolerable Act. When the British are sending in more troops, the colonists did not like. They thought to have the foreign troops or the British troops come into your city, which is a threat in a time of peace. Right. Uh, they did not have good relations with the standing army, probably because some of the standing army would drink and there could be hostilities and run the issues. So a lot of the colonists were not fans of standing armies. So I'm going to talk about the Declaration of Independence. So, um, Ed, we know there are many grievances that are right. listed in the Declaration of Independence. Quartering, putting soldiers in your house. Right. So quartering of troops becomes the Third Amendment of the Constitution. But if anyone looks at the Declaration of Independence, there is a grievance, right. uh, the way the Declaration works, is to list the grievances, because yep. it took it very seriously. If you're going to declare independence or a world power, you better have good reasons on why you're going to take this step. So they list all these reasons why we're declaring independence, and among the reasons that are given, and I'll quote it, 
talks about he, he is King George III. He has kept, let's see, among us in times of peace, standing armies without the consent of our legislature. So that's one of the grievances in the Declaration, right. that they didn't like the fact that the British had standing armies. So now, fast forward to the Constitution, fast forward to the first Congress, and the anti-federalists don't like the new federal government, they don't like military, especially standing armies, and here the question I'll ask is, in their minds, for the anti-federalists, if you don't want to have a standing army, what's the alternative? <laughs> a militia, so you state militias. So that's what the anti-federalists were more interested in having, is they thought freedom would be more guaranteed by having the 13 different states with their own militias, which are under the control of the states. And uh, another night we can go into more detail about other provisions of the Constitution, how the Congress does have the ability to call up with the president the state militias. Right. But ordinarily, the state militias are under the control of the states. Right. So this is, again, the sum of the tension between the federalists and the anti-federalists. So we're talking about the act establishing the War Department. We talked about the Army class. We talked about how they wait until the end of that first session before they adopt the law, bringing the Army under the control of the War Department. And we'll talk a little bit about Henry Knox, and then I want to talk a little bit but, about the other generals on his staff. you got you to get closer to your phone, Adam. But, we, may, Adam uh, we don't hear Adam, you. Adam, one point about the militias. Each state would have its own militias, and even through into the Civil War, regiments were raised and organized by state. But it does say that uh, the president shall be the commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy of the U.S. and of the militia of the several states when called into the actual service of the U.S. So it's like the National Guard today is typically commanded by the governor, but it can be federalized and then becomes part of the... U.S. Army. So this is the way of the military. The militias are under state control yep. unless they are called up by the president. And if you notice, it doesn't say that Congress has to call them up because Congress might not be in session right. if there's an emergency. And the other point is that uh, if Washington, or at the time it was New York, was the capital than Philadelphia, if the capital is being attacked and Congress can't meet, then Congress can't call up the militias. Or for that matter, give the president marching orders. So the president has to have independent authority, arguably. But can you hear me better now? I put you on speaker. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yes. All right, so you're on speaker. So let me talk about Henry Knox. And if you go to the website, there's a great picture of Henry Knox. And uh, let me ask him. We've talked about him on other nights. But what was his background before he starts moving up through the ranks during the Revolutionary War? Do you remember what his background was? We have no idea. Okay, so Henry Knox was a bookseller in Boston. And he winds up becoming the head of the artillery for the, the Continental Army. So He's we probably good in math. Artillery requires some math. He was probably good in math. Artillery. Exactly. So he's good in math, and he has the books that tell you how to fire artillery. <laughs> so he develops a specialty and expertise on cannons and uh, math, and uh, winds up being the head of the artillery, uh, the chief artillery officer for the Continental Army, and he sees action in very important battles. So as Secretary of War, what does Henry Knox do? And the answer is he's assigned to oversee the military. This is after the Revolutionary War to improve the preparedness of local militias, because the War Department really has to be able to work with the different militias and the training of the militias, getting them equipped. And we're going to talk later tonight about the Militia Act of 1792. He's also in charge of coastal fortifications, because he wants to make sure that the forts are ready if we are attacked. And also, if you remember, that at this time, there's the Northwest Indian War, which yep. we'll go into a little bit more detail. So these are the things that go on during Henry Knox's administration as the first Secretary of War. And I'll also point out to you that um, it's interesting because you mentioned Navy, Navy and uh, Manny, and from 
1789 when the War Department was created until 1798, so that's basically uh, almost 10 years. The Secretary of War was responsible for all military affairs, which means Army and Navy, so that includes naval operations. So it wasn't until a decade later that they created the Navy, although there was a Navy during the Revolutionary War, for the period we're talking about, for the first 10 years, they did not have a separate Navy. It was all under the Department of, of, uh, of the Military or the Department of War. And a little bit of just moving forward. Uh, so yeah. Although Hamilton did create the Coast Guard, and they had revenue cutters. That's right, and we'll talk about that also. That's an excellent point. Hey, don't exclude, and don't exclude the Cuban Navy, okay? No, 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 no. Uh, White Cuban uh, Navy. Yeah, that controlled the Mississippi River in 1780 and 81, okay? That's like having a Continental, no, that's a na- Spanish. Navy. Yeah, it was a Spanish, but it was a bunch. It had a bunch of slaves and Cuban guys on there. Jeez, you guys always exclude the Revolutionary Navy. Okay, oh, God, I got to well, hold. I have to look into that for another night, Manny. But uh, I'm agreeing with Ed and for both of you that uh, the point is that Hamilton, and we'll talk about 1790. We haven't gotten there, but 1790 is when Hamilton, through the Treasury Department, not under the War Department, right. under the Treasury Department, creates a cutter service, which is revenue to collect revenue and make sure that there's no smuggling for the ports. So my, my point was only that, <coughs> excuse me, that the, the, the War Department from 1789 until 1798 was in charge of the Army and the Navy because there was not a separate Navy Department, which occurred in 1798 in this time period when they're worried about going to war with France. And then it's not until 1947 that the, what's called the War Department is split between the Army and the Air Force and then they create the Defense Department in 1949. So this is after World War II is when they reorganize and create the Department of Defense instead of the Department of War. We can talk about how PC is that or not. Um, so what, what do I want to do now is I want to get more specifics on the tension between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. And I've got a bunch of quotes on the Statutes and Stories website. So I'm wondering if either of you want to read, uh, let's see, this is towards the end of the post, and I quote Brutus, who is one of the Anti-Federalists. And he gives the reasons why he does not think a standing army is a good idea, especially if you don't trust the government. Does any of you, if you're able to pull up the website, want to read the Brutus quote? Ed, Ed, neither Ed nor I know how to read, period. We, no, we could pull it up. Why don't you read it? Okay, so I'll read it. So what does Brutus say, and this is at the time when they're debating ratification of the Constitution, and the anti-federalists are trying to emphasize that we should instead just have decentralized state militias. They didn't want a standing army. So this is uh, some of the quotations from Brutus, who's writing under a pseudonym. pseudonym. <clears throat> and he said that standing armies, quote, are dangerous to the liberties of a people, skipping ahead, not only because the rulers may employ them for the purposes of supporting themselves, in other words, the president can use the army for his own purposes, supporting themselves in an, any usurpation of powers, which they might see proper to exercise, but there is a great hazard, this is talking about the American army, a great hazard that an army will subvert the forms of government under whose authority they are raised and establish one according to the pleasure of their leader. So this is the anti-federalists were worried about the standing army. On the other hand, we want to give the federalists. So what does Hamilton have to say? And Hamilton is writing in Federalist number 23. He writes the Federalist Papers with John Jay and with uh, Madison. So in Federalist 23, he talks about the military and he gives a counter-argument on why we need a standing army. So now we're going to quote Hamilton, and he says that um, it's necessary for the federal government to provide for the common defense, which, of course, is in the Constitution. And according to Hamilton, the, the military, quote, ought to exist, standing armies ought to exist without limitation, because it is impossible to foresee or define the extent or variety 
variety of national exigencies or the corresponding extent and variety of the means which may be necessary to satisfy them. So we're saying you need to keep your hands open and your, your, uh, your options open, rather, and you need to have a standing army because otherwise you're weak. And we'll talk about Washington and Washington's thought about this. I'm going to quote you now another Federalist, James Wilson. I think he's from Pennsylvania. And he says during the Pennsylvania Convention that the power of raising and keeping an army in time of peace is essential in every generation to every generation. No government can secure its citizens against dangers, internal or external, without possessing it. So, again, Federalists want a standing army. The Federalists are the, those who get elected into power, not surprisingly, for the first Congress, so they adopt the war act that we talked about, the, the act establishing the Department of War. <coughs> Let me give more background, though, about the Continental Army, because Continental Army is the underpinning of what will become the, the U.S. Army after the Constitution. And interestingly, I give quotes and links, so if anyone goes to the website, I have links to the orders that Washington gets during the Revolutionary War from the Second Continental Congress. And you can read that he was, you know, people remember he was unanimously selected as the commander-in-chief. And at the time, we only had 22,000 militia that were stationed around Boston and New York, about 5,000 around New York. So he gets chosen as the commander-in-chief on June 15th of 1775. And you can read the orders that are given to him by the Continental Congress. And that's, that, under, uh, that's under Militia Act of 1792? No. This is at the bottom of the act establishing the War Department. You have uh, a little discussion about the creation of the Continental Army. And then I also put in a link for the rules and regulations governing the Continental Army. And they spend a lot of time. And this is their meeting in Philadelphia. This is Adams and his, his crowd of uh, the Founding Fathers. The Second Continental Congress, and they write very detailed rules, what they call them, uh, the rules and regulations for the Continental Army, because you know we're citizens, and this is our citizen army. So I won't go through it tonight, but it's very interesting. If anyone wants to read, this is this is from the journals of the Continental Congress, and I give links, so you can see the rules that they imposed on on the, you know, their soldiers and on their army, who answered to the Continental Congress. They answered to Washington, and then to the Continental Congress. And I'll also point out to you that after the Revolutionary War. As we mentioned, that the Continental Army got disbanded, and we said there was only one regiment which is left to guard the western frontier, and one artillery battery which is going to guard West Point. <coughs> and then a few years later, they created, and this is some trivia for people, the 3rd Infantry Regiment was formed in 1784, which became the first full regiment of the regular army of infantry, is the 3rd Infantry Reg Regiment. So if you have any veterans on who know their, their military history, they might be familiar with the 3rd Infantry Regiment. All right, so that was the act creating the War Department, which is 1789. <clears throat> and now I want to skip to 1792, which is the Militia Act. And remember how Washington and Hamilton wanted a strong military. The problem is they don't want to push the ball too far because the anti-federalists, it's a demand. And you may remember from other nights that there was a battle that we lost in 1791. And if people are online, you can go to one of the other posts on Statutes and Stories, which is the Militia Acts of 1792. And I talk about emergency presidential powers. <laughs> so, 1791, there's a it's, a, it's a war, if you will, that most people don't really uh, study in school. But uh, we, we fought the British. That war ended 1783, the Revolutionary War. But 1791, there's hostilities. And I don't know if you remember the name, but there are several names that are given. We lose a very bad battle. Bad for us, good for the Native Americans. Called the Battle of the Wabash River. River, the Wabash River. It's also called St. Clair's Defeat, and um, the, the, the victorious Indian, his name is Chief Little Turtle, and uh, it's also called the Battle of a Thousand Slain, and this was during the Northwest Indian Wars. And because the U.S. military was so underfunded, 
and was so ill-prepared and ill-equipped because, again, they weren't spending that much money on the military because the anti-federalists didn't want a strong standing army. So once they realized, and I think the statistics are that basically half of the entire U.S. Army was defeated and slaughtered in this battle in the Northwest Territory, the only time you get anything close to this uh, for the next hundred years was a little bighorn when Custer is uh, slaughtered in his last stand in 1876. Wow. So this, is, this is a very big battle that we lose. And Washington is not happy about it. And you remember when we talked about executive privilege, that this is the first time that the executive department or the, the military and the president are being examined by Congress. What happened at this Battle of Wabash where we were defeated soundly? And that's the first time that they think about using executive privilege. And that was debated. And people can go to the WSGF website and then listen to some of those discussions about executive privilege growing out of that defeat in 1791 in the Battle of Thousand Flames. So what is the point? Because we lose this battle, and Washington and Hamilton realize we have to reestablish and uh, strengthen the military, the way they decide to do that is with the Militia Act of 1792. So we're going to talk about that now, the Militia Act of 1792. And we can also later talk about the Second Amendment, and the, sort of the origins of what's going on with the Second Amendment. But uh, they did not want to have a very large standing army. So the idea was we're going to strengthen the militias. And what Henry Knox, the Secretary of War, does is he sort of analyzes how prepared are the militias that they have to be called up? And uh, long story short, the answer is that very few of the state militias are training on a regular basis, and very few of them actually have equipment, meaning that if people get mustered and they're, they're called up, how many of them actually have the equipment that you need, the backpack and the bullets, or whatever you call the bullets back then, the ball, the musket balls, and the rifle? I would say none. So very few, only about 20%, if I remember correctly. Of, of the numbers from all the states. So they, they passed this law, which we're going to talk about now, the Militia Acts of 1792. And if you notice, I said acts, because there are two separate acts that are passed within a week of, of each other. And Washington talks about this in his first annual address. And I think I mentioned on the post that people associate which president with peace through strength during the Cold War. Who was it that people understand, you know, trust and verify and peace through strength? Who? who, who? Hey, Ronald Reagan. Ronaldus Magnus. Yeah. So, so, Ronaldus Magnus Reaganist. So, so Reagan is correctly associated with peace through strength, but he did not make up that idea on his own. So now we're going to quote Reagan. We're going to quote just uh, Reagan, but Washington. So in his first annual address, this is January 8th of 1790. This is what George Washington says. He says, "To be prepared for war is one of the most effectual means of preserving peace." And unless you're a total peace a pacifist, I, I think most people would agree that to be prepared for war, you prepare yeah. uh, is the most efficient way of the most effectual means of preserving the peace is to have a, a strong military. I think a or, Roman yeah, general think said that. A, ro a retired Roman general who went into politics said that. All the um, young Roman politicians said, oh, we want peace. And he said, if you want peace, prepare for war. So this is, this is not a new concept. Old so Washington Romans, is also borrowing them from the Romans. Yep. So, the point we're going to make now is that these acts that we're going to talk about, the Militia Acts of 1792, not coincidentally, are adopted at the very end of the second session of Congress, of the second Congress. So they wait until the end because they don't want to, for political reasons, they don't want to push the, the military laws too quickly because this is something they're getting opposition. But the fact that they lose this battle, the Battle of uh, the Wabash River or St. Clair's defeat, gives them the, the imperative to move forward and to pass these laws that we're going to talk about. So what is the first Militia Act from 1792? <laughs> and the quick answer is there are two separate names for these two Militia Acts. The first is the Calling Forth Act, 
and the second is the Uniform Militia Act. So let's talk about the Calling Forth Act, which is this question about how can and when, what are the justifications for a president to call forth the militia, to call them up, because they're state militia. So when can he nationalize them and uh, you know, require that the militia come marching under his command? So this is the Calling Forth Act of 1792, which is also known as the First Militia Act of 1792. So this is what the act says. And it has three circumstances where the president can call forth the militias. Number one, when there's an invasion, and that's obvious. If the country's being invaded, the president has the authority to do this. And remember, the anti-federalists are going to resist. They don't want the president to have unlimited authority to do whatever he wants or she wants. So the second reason is that there's an insurrection. If there's an insurrection, then the president can, once the insurrection, then we'll talk about that. But that's where people are rioting and uh, civil strife. So that's the second example. If it's a civil war, for example, it's an insurrection. The third basis that the president can use to call forth the militia, which is the name of the act, the Calling Forth Act, and I'm going to quote it, is that combinations are too powerful to be suppressed by ordinary course of judicial proceedings. So even if it isn't, if it doesn't rise to the level of an insurrection, if the combination of opposition to the government, those opposed to the government, are powerful enough that they can't be suppressed by ordinary judicial proceedings, then the president can use the Calling Forth Act and call forth the militia. And we're going to give an example of when that happens. So before we do more of the Calling Forth Act, uh, let's, let's think out loud. And this is in 1794. They actually have to use the Militia Act and call forth the militia because of a rebellion. And just to give some of the names, remember there is the Shays Rebellion prior to the revolution, prior to the Constitution being adopted. Shays Rebellion was in Massachusetts in 1786-1787 time frame. But then a couple of years later, 1794, after a certain ta a tax was passed, this was one of Hamilton's taxes, and uh, what was the most popular... Whiskey Rebellion in Pennsylvania. <laughs> exactly. So one of the taxes that Hamilton puts in place, because he wants a diversified tax base, is the tax on whiskey. And whiskey is one of the, uh, in fact, I think it's the most popular alcoholic beverage back then. It still but, is. Yeah, I like it. It still is. All right, so we'll, we'll talk about the whiskey tax later. But uh, let's see, I'm looking at my notes about the whiskey tax, but uh, it is clear that that was, um, and, and whiskey, by the way, was used as a way of converting some of the crops into a, a form where they could be saved. Yep. Right? Because the, the grain may go bad, but if you convert it into whiskey, it has a longer shelf life, depending on who's around the whiskey. So <laughs> it was used as a form of currency. What year so was, was that? that? What year was that whiskey rebellion? So the Whiskey Rebellion is 1794, and oh. what I'm talking about now is the Militia Act of 1792. So interestingly, within two years of them adopting the Militia Act, they, they wind up it. having to use it. Yep. And let me skip ahead a little bit. So uh, the only time that this has happened, where a president has led, as president, has led troops uh, going into battle, although there wasn't going to be much of a battle, was the Whiskey Rebellion, when Washington leads, and let me give you some of the numbers. And, and this is a man, Washington is a man of action, and he realizes that we've got a... Or he's a man of whiskey. He was that, too. <laughs> we're we're going to talk about that. So the Militia Act was passed 1792. Again, we're talking about how they wind up having to use it in 1794. And the point I'm going to make, if I can find my notes, give me a second, is that... Let me give the location. So this is western Pennsylvania, where the farmers are very upset about this whiskey tax. It's, for them, whiskey was almost a form of currency in many yeah. respects. So Washington calls up the militias from New Jersey, Maryland, and Virginia, and what he wants to do is uh, have a big show of force. So you've got maybe a thousand farmers who are rebelling at a courthouse, 
and they're harassing and corn feathering tax collectors. So Washington comes marching in with 13,000 militiamen. They arrest, this is during the Whiskey Rebellion, 1794. They arrest 150 rebels. They pardon uh, the ones who are, two of them get convicted for treason, but they later get pardoned by Washington. And this is the largest use of military force against a domestic uprising until you have the Civil War. And Washington leads the soldiers marching to Western Pennsylvania along with Hamilton and the other officers. So that was the Whiskey Rebellion, and Washington is sending a message that, yes, we're a democracy, but you cannot take law into your own hands, and uh, you know you can't be creating an internal civil war like that or a strife, uh, similar to what the Whiskey Rebellion, that you can't rebel against the government, at least when Washington is the president. So <laughs> let's go back to the Militia Act of 1792. And with Congress, it's interesting how they've they put, and we may have talked about this on another night, but they put safeguards and checks and balances into the Militia Act. So let me give some examples. So he said the three things that are grounds for calling forth the militia. But Section 2, and we put the links on the website so you can read the law yourself. But Section 2 of the law has, and I, I think it's, it's important, and this is, this is smart thinking on those who wrote this, this law in 1792, the Calling Forth Act. And I'm going to read you from Section 2. And Section 2 talks about how we don't want the president to have unlimited authority. You know, should he be able to decide, or she, whenever... The combination is too powerful to be suppressed by ordinary legal or judicial proceedings. That was one of the requirements in the law, that the law can't be enough to suppress. This is above and beyond. The court can't handle it on their own. Does the president get to make that decision? So what Section 2 of the Calling Forth Act from 1792 says, which I'm reading to you, so it goes on to say in Section 2 that the president can only use this law and this ability to call forth the militia if it's not an invasion, if it's not an insurrection, when an associate justice or district judge are certifying that those opposed to the execution of the law could not be suppressed by ordinary courses of legal proceedings. So that is a safeguard built into the law, but the president can't unilaterally decide that he wants to call it the militia. Either it's a true insurrection, it's a true invasion, or you've got a judge or justice certifying that the law is not adequate here. We can't just use regular what's called the police force or judicial forces uh, to quell the, the unrest. So that's the check and balance built into that law. Let me skip ahead a little bit about another requirement or another safeguard they put into the law. This is Section 3 of the statute, and it has a reasonable requirement that the president can't just attack insurgents because these are American citizens. He has to first, by proclamation, command the insurgents to disperse and retire peaceably to their respective abodes within a limited time. So now that I've read the Section 3 of the Militia Act, the president has to proclaim, hey, I'm coming, and if you guys don't uh, go home, I'm going to come in fast and come in hard. Well, what does Washington do before he uh, marches on western Pennsylvania during the Whiskey Rebellion? Hopefully he takes a shot Send of whiskey. notices. No, no. So he may have done that also, Manny, but consistent with Section 3 of the Militia Act, he issues a proclamation, and he says, right. we're coming, and if you don't disperse, we're coming after you, and you're going to get arrested, and you're going to get tried. So that was built into the Militia Act, which is the, called the Calling Forth Act. All right, so now I want to segue over to the second act from 1792, which is the Uniform Militia Act. And without going into too much detail, what this act does is it sort of tries to make the militias more professionalized and give them a more routine organization and provide for what the, the army, you know, how, how they should be equipped and what the requirements would be for militias instead of each state, you know, underfunding their militias and taking them for granted. So this is uh, the first thing is that the Uniform Militia Act describes who has to be in the militia. So I'm not going to ask you what age is, 
but uh, similar to today. So what age to be in the military today? 18. 18. So the ages for this is who was covered by the Militia Act. Uh, so this is called the Uniform Militia Act 1792. It's every free, able-bodied white male citizen has to be available for work in the militia uh, as long as they're between the ages of 18 and 45. And they have to, uh, let's see, be available within 12 months and, uh, you know, make themselves available so that the militias know who they are, sort of like a draft, you know, or selective service. So we've got the links to this act so people can read about it. And it provides that every citizen, and I described who they are, they're white, able-bodied male citizens between 18 and 45 are required under this militia act to provide himself with a good musket or fire lock, sufficient bayonet or belt, two spare flints, a knapsack, I'm skipping around, and 24 cartridges. Those are their bullets. The cartridges, the, the, mm-hmm. whatever you call it, the, the gunpowder cartridge that fires the, fires the musket ball. Mm-hmm. But this was what was written into that militia act of 1792. And we may have talked about it on another night, that there are some people who are exempt from the militia requirements, and those who are exempted are mariners. So if you're working with the, the Navy or with shipping, then you don't have to be in the militia. Custom House official, officials, ferry boatmen, what does the ferry boatman do? You guys want to take a guess what a ferry boat person does? Jeez. He works on a ferry boat. Or he's a ferry. So no. sometimes they didn't have bridges. How do you get across a, how do you get across a, Oh, the toll, pot, uh, yeah. toll booth. No, you operate the ferry. Ferry. This is infrastructure. So the yeah. ferrymen you were important for trade and for other purposes and transportation. So they did not have to go into the, the military or the militia or make themselves available for the militia. Also, stagecoach drivers uh, who are employed on post roads. And this is all in the law. People have nothing better to do and want to read about the Militia Act of 1792. <laughs> so what we're describing how this is the beginnings of the American military. It starts with a very small continental army. Uh, who uh, you know are left over after the war? Then you have the Militia Act, and things are pretty quiet, other than fighting with the, the Native Americans on the Western frontier until things get a little dicey with France after the French Revolution starts, and the French are seizing American ships, and the British are doing it too. So now we're going to skip ahead to 1798, and this is the law you are mentioning, Manny. 1798, and we'll also mention the Coast Guard was created 1790, but 1798, it looks like you're going to go to war. So. The laws we're going to mention now, which are also on the website Statutes and Stories, is the Marine Corps Act of 1798, and also the Act Establishing the Navy in 1798. So let's do the Marine Corps first, and I've got a trivia question for you. So if you go to the website, there's a picture of a Marine memorial, a very famous memorial of soldiers raising a flag. And I'll mention this is the Marine Corps Memorial, and this is the famous battle scene from World War II in the Pacific. And what what does the Marine Corps Memorial depict of these five soldiers, I believe it is, raising a flag after a very hard battle in the Pacific uh, fighting the Japanese? In Iwo Jima? Yeah. So the Marine Corps Memorial is also known as the Iwo Jima Memorial. And uh, it was created in 1954, dedicated by President Eisenhower. And um, this I did not know. But every major battle involving the Marine Corps is, is, uh, what's the word for it, engraved at the bottom of the monument. This is in Washington, D.C. So that's the, I don't know how tall it is, but it's pretty big. So that's the Marine Corps Memorial or the War Memorial or the Iwo Jima Memorial. So this is what we're talking about now. The Marine Corps Act started in 1798. So here's the question. What does the Marine Corps do? How are the Marines understood to be different than the Army? And I'll answer the question. That uh, the Continental Marines, by example, uh, they're to do ship-to-ship fighting. So the, 
folks that are the sailors on the boat, they're not the ones necessarily that have to attack and try to go onto another boat if the two boats are fighting one another. Right. The Marines are the ones that do the ship-to-ship fighting. They provide naval security around the ports. They enforce discipline by the Army. So in some ways, the Marines, the early Marines, were almost military police. Right. They enforced discipline, but again, they were disbanded after the Revolutionary War. <laughs> in this period, in the, 17, in the late 1790s, 1798 time frame, when we're on the verge of going to war with France, and we had naval hostilities with France, it's referred to as the Quasi-War. So as the, the Quasi-War is taking place under President Adams, I refer to it as a trifecta under the Fifth Congress. Congress lasts for two years, so the Fifth Congress would be 10 years into the new country, into the new Constitution. So three new laws are passed in this time frame. You've got the Act Establishing the Navy Department, You've got the Naval Armament Act of uh, that same time period, which uh, authorizes 12 new ships to be built. And you also have the uh, Marine Corps Act. So the Navy, the Marine Corps, and the Act establishing the Department of the Navy are all more or less in the 1798 time frame. And people can debate about what was the birthday of the Marine Corps. 1775 during the Revolution, but they were kind of, they lapsed for a while. By the way, I'm, I'm hearing myself talk. Is there a reverberation you're getting or, or backlash? Or back- no, we're backlash? all right. We're okay. The, but the Marine Corps, had, you're right, the Marines are infantry that fight on ships. Uh, but they were, and so they were with the U.S. or with the Connell Navy during the Revolution. But if the Connell Navy was disbanded, then they would disband the Marine Corps as well. Exactly. So people can give different dates to when you celebrate the birthday of the, of the Marines. And I'll mention to you, and it's on the website, that November 10th, so this is yesterday, November 10th, 1775, is celebrated as the birthday of the Marine Corps, and that was when it was first created during the Revolutionary War. But uh, I'm pointing out that the Marine Corps Act of 1798 was on July 11th. So the Marines have two birthdays. July 11th is the Marine Corps Act, 1798, July 11th. But the original Marines from the Continental Marines were November 10th, which is yesterday, of 1775. And it was President Adams who signed this act, creating and organizing the Marine Corps. All right, so let's move away from the Marine Corps Act, uh, the act establishing the Navy. I'm just going to mention some ships that were constituted. And the, probably the, the most famous frigate, <coughs> these are the early wood ships that were created and built under the new federal government. There were six frigates, the United States, the President, the Constellation, the Chesapeake, the Congress, and the Constitution. And one of them had a nickname, um, even though it was built out of wood. Old Ironsides. Ironsides. So the Constitution was Old Ironsides, and that was commissioned after the Naval Act of 1794. So anyone who's a you know, big history fan of uh, the, the Army, the Navy, the Marines, and we, will, we will not do the Air Force. That doesn't come until much later. Now, all these laws are on the Statutes and Stories website, and you can read all about them. So we talked about the Whiskey Act, which is the first the Whiskey Act, the first time a president leads the military uh, into what could have been serious hostilities, but with that show of force of 13,000 troops, the, um, the Whiskey Rebellion sort of pitters away. And let's now talk about... Shock and awe. Say that again? Shock and awe. Shock and awe. Right. I agree. That shock and awe makes a lot of sense. Yep. Let's talk about Hamilton's shock and awe. So Hamilton created the Coast Guard, and this is 1790, so we're skipping around, and this is also on statutes and stories. And the one thing I want to mention about Hamilton is Hamilton was a guy that was very very in the weeds. 
is very detail-oriented. So at the same time that he's getting the finances of the new government in order, he's also setting forth the rules and regulations for his revenue cutters, and his, you know, his, his own, own, in a way, it's his own little mini navy, right. the Coast Guard. Yep. I didn't call it the Coast Guard. So I want to read from the website, and uh, this is, I'm, I'm quoting from Chernow, who writes the Hamilton biography. Let me spend a moment just reading this so people can have a click in about how uh, ahead of his time Hamilton was when he puts the, the house in order or, or sort of organizes the protocols for the Coast Guard. And remember that when an American ship is going to get boarded by the Coast Guard, these are Americans on the boat. And Americans, American soldiers or American sailors you know, have to be respectful to the American sailors because uh, we're all one country. So he was worried that uh, he didn't want the people to have uh, to get upset at his revenue cutters and his uh, Treasury Department, and he's aware of, you know, that Whiskey Rebellion is going to happen a couple of years later. So this is uh, the way that Chernow describes Hamilton's perceptiveness. So Hamilton, according to Chernow, was, was mindful of public perceptions when he outlined the rigorous standards of conduct that he expected for the Coast Guard. This is Hamilton. He cautioned cutter officers, quote, to always keep in mind that their countrymen are free men and as such are impatient, that's the way he describes it, they're impatient of everything that bears the least mark of a domineering spirit. So Hamilton's encouraging the officer corps, be respectful when you board a boat, these are your, your fellow countrymen. Hamilton advised the Coast Guard to, quote, refrain from whatever has the semblance of haughtiness, rudeness, or insult. And then Chernow goes on to say that these same written regulations that govern the Coast Guard, that govern the Coast Guard, that were written by Hamilton, and many, you'll appreciate this, these policies from Hamilton, were so masterfully written that his directives about boarding foreign vessels were still in effect during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. All right. Unbelievable. Think about that. Something that Hamilton writes, 1790 time frame, was still being used by the Coast Guard in 1962. Sure, it was probably good. Probably still today. Is there any reason to believe that they're no longer in effect? I imagine when they board, Coast Guard, when they board ships... Even today, they have, uh, they're probably very respectful and had a certain code of uh, ethics and manners when they board ships. Let me give you some details. And I don't pretend to be an expert on the Coast Guard, although one of the folks I work with, uh, her husband is a uh, Coast Guard officer. But um, what Hamilton put in place protocols that when they board a ship and the ship is going to go into the port because they're going to figure out the amount of the cargo and they're going to assess the taxes, the tariffs. And I should also point out that the seventh law, we talked about it tonight, that was adopted by the first Congress was the was the act creating the Department of War. We also talked about the act creating the Secretary of, uh, of State was, was, was right before that, so one of the other early acts. <clears throat> but an act which came even before that, so after the Oath Act, you had the acts creating, they were called duties on tonnage. So this is to raise revenue. So the first law we talked about, the first act of the first Congress was the Oath Act, and then you had the Oath. I'm sorry, you had the acts establishing the ability to raise tariffs, and then you had the acts that we talked about tonight, creating the Department of War and creating the Department of State. So what's my point? My point is that when a revenue cutter ship boards a vessel that's going to be going into port, uh, they would have, you needed multiple officers on the revenue cutter because at least one of them would go on the boat to make sure that they weren't tampering with the cargo so that, uh, that they can be assured that uh, when it comes ashore, that they know what's there, and, and sometimes things had to be uh, wrapped up or seals had to be put on it. They don't want people messing with the seals or messing with the cargo, so uh, the, a sailor from, an officer from one of the cutters would accompany, would go on, would board the boat, and uh, would accompany it into the port where it's going to get inspected so they can assess whatever the tariffs are. 
that it involves interaction between the American soldiers and sailors and co- Coast Guard. What do you call a member of the Coast Guard? The officers, right? What, what's Coast Guard? Sailors? Uh, seamen, I guess. <laughs> Coast Guard. Right. So the, Coast Guard. Coast Guard officials. You know that they're going to be working with the the, the ship that they're that they're inspecting that they're escorting at the port. So long story short, that's Hamilton, and that's the Coast Guard from 1790. And how are we doing on time? You're down to two minutes. Down. Two minute warning. All right, so I'm just going to give the heads up to folks that other laws which we didn't cover tonight that people can go to statutes and stories or look at some of the podcasts. In prior evenings, we've talked about the Battle of Yorktown and how Spain and France bankrolled that Battle of Yorktown. Uh, you can go to the website and you can read about Revolutionary War pensions because that's important. You have a military, but you have to support them when they get injured and when they retire. We also have this Conscription Act of 1863, which is the first wartime draft. That's obviously during the Civil War, so people can read about the Conscription Act of 1863. And then the, the most recent that we get on Statutes and Stories, more or less, is World War One. And we've got some posts about the what changes during World War One, and the World War One becomes you know the first all World War One is the first industrialized, the first 21st century war. Um, and we can talk about how today, when soldiers experience what are the names for it, but PTSD, you know, some of these ideas are being recognized during World War One. They called it being shell chopped. So we've got some posts about the U.S. entering World War One and how. World War One changed the dynamics of how the military works and how war works, probably for the worse. So uh, these are other things people can read on the Statutes and Stories website. I am saluting through the phone. I'm going to do a, a shout-out to my father, who is a veteran, and uh, thanking the, uh, those who have served and continue to serve for what they do. And amen to that. Yep. Kudos. Now, um, thanks to veterans. Thanks to veterans. Uh, uh, this is how we started the show, so we might as well end it. Thanks to you veterans, us wimps can sit here and just mouth off all day because we have the freedom to do so. So stay free, my friends. And that's the end of our show at Statues and Stories with Adam Levinson. His, uh, his fantastic blog is on Statues and Stories on our website, wsqfradio.com. You can catch it there or obviously go to Statues and Stories. To listen to this recording, it'll be available tomorrow. Happy, happy, wonderful Memorial Day for the veterans. Well... In memory of the veterans, so it's a Memorial Day in, 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 for veterans, as well as, you know, arms, Armistice Day, I think it is. Mm-hmm. So take care, Adam. Good night, everybody. Good night.